Please turn uh, first to our scripture reading, uh, to Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 44. Actually, I think we'll read to the end of the chapter there, through 46. Matthew 21, 33 to 46 will be our scripture reading today. And then our sermon passage is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 14, verses 1 to 24. So we're picking up where we left off last week. 2 Samuel 14, verses 1 to 24. But first, Matthew 21, 33 to 44. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. This is God Almighty speaking to you, his creatures, but also his sons and his daughters. Please give your full attention to God's word as it's now to be read. This is the Lord Jesus speaking, and he says to those who are hearing him, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this, his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And now turning to our sermon passage, first, 2 Samuel 14, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 24. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from him there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them. And one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. 
The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest, for my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired and infallible and inerrant word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we have read about the inner proceedings of the court of King David. We have read of the machinations of Joab, the king's top general and chief advisor. We have heard this parable that was told to him by the woman of Tekoa. And we confess, dear Lord, that it's difficult for us to have a full understanding of what is taking place. Is what Joab is doing, is it good, is it wise? Was it right for the woman of Tekoa to come in and to challenge her king in the way she did? And so, Lord, we pray that you'd please give us understanding, that you'd give us guidance. But we pray as well that you would give to each of us wise counselors in our lives. That you would have a, help us, cause us to have close and trusted friends and confidants whose wisdom is helpful and instrumental 
and for our great benefit. So please, Lord, guide us. Bless us by your Spirit, we pray. We pray that you'd please bless the one who preaches and bless the, bless the ones who hear. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now at the end of last week's passage, David and his son Absalom were completely estranged from one another following Absalom's murder of his brother Amnon. After having plotted his brother's murder for two years. Amnon, we have to at least, Absalom rather, we have to at least concede, had reason, he had cause to be angry with his brother Amnon for what Amnon had done to his sister Tamar. And yet the manner in which he did what he did, the fact that he did what he did, all of these things, taking uh, the matter of justice into his own hands, plotting with great malice this premeditated murder of his brother, it was completely wrong and showed the true heart of Absalom. Absalom, you remember, he fled to Geshur. He lived with his mother's father, Talmai, who was the king of Geshur. And at the beginning of our passage this morning, Absalom had lived in exile in Geshur for three years. And as a result of the murder of Amnon, he was the eldest of David's remaining sons. And that's a significant point we need to keep in mind. Now, Joab, of course, has been with David for a very long time by this time. We're not told when this happened in the life of David, but we have to imagine that David has been king for quite some time. Joab has been his right-hand man uh, since before he was king. He has served as his top general, his close advisor, for better and for worse, for much of that time. Now, we first met Joab back in 2 Samuel 2, when Abner killed Joab's brother Asahel. And later, after Abner had defected from Saul's son Ishbosheth to David, Joab killed him in retaliation. We don't know a great deal about Joab, but what we do know is that he is a ruthless Machiavellian type advisor to King David. You remember that Joab uh, also facilitated and participated in the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, at David's command. Joab was the guy who was willing to get his hands dirty for his king. And he seemed to live by the rule that politics were to be played with deception, treachery, and crime. All of this is to say that our guard should be up anytime we read about Joab and his scheming. We should be very attentive to what's going on and not necessarily entrust, uh, to not necessarily trust the motives and intentions of Joab. Well, Joab, it seems, has come up with a plan of succession for King David. Amnon, the, the firstborn, has been dead now for five years, and according to the primogeniture of the day, the next oldest male offspring of the king was crowned prince, which in this case would be Absalom. As we noted last week, we don't know what happened to David's second-in-line son, Kiliab, who was born to David's wife, Abigail. But since there's no mention of him whatsoever after that one time in 2 Samuel chapter 3, when the sons of David are listed out, we can assume he was deceased by this time, or at least no longer functioning in any capacity that would enable him to be the next in line. And so Absalom, 
the next in line. He's alive, but he is in exile. And for Joab, that appears to be a problem. And so he once again takes matters into his own hands to ensure that David has an heir to the throne. And so perhaps Joab's intentions here, his motives are pure. Perhaps they're good. It's very difficult to tease this out. As we work our way through the sermon today, I'd ask you to, to consider this thought. Jesus, the true heir of David, whose throne God promised he would establish forever, shares his inheritance with all who believe in him. Let me say that one more time. Jesus, the true heir of David, whose throne God promised he would establish forever, shares his inheritance with all who believe in him. The sermon has three parts. The first, an attempted parable. The second, discerning good and evil. And the third, the prince returns. Again, an attempted parable. That's the first point of the sermon. The second, discerning good and evil. And the third, the prince returns. So let's look at this first point, an attempted parable. Verse 1 says that Joab knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Since David maintained his animus toward Absalom even after he allowed him to return to Jerusalem, perhaps this isn't the best translation of the phrase in verse 1. And several commentators have noted that a better rendering of the phrase would be the king's heart went out against Absalom. Not to him. In fact, there's a passage in Daniel chapter 11 that uses this same Word that's translated to in the ESV and most other English translations, but translates the word against in Daniel 11. One commentator goes so far as to say this, that verses 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 39 through chapter 14, verse 1 should be translated this way. David longed intensely to march out against Absalom. For he was grieved about Amnon that he was dead. Joab now, the son of Zeruiah, discerned that the king was ill-disposed toward Absalom. If understood this way, which is a legitimate translation of the passage, then David's rejection of Absalom once he returns to Jerusalem makes a little bit more sense. If David is longing to have his son back with him, and then we see at the end of our passage that he doesn't want to have anything to do with Absalom, he doesn't want him to come into his presence at all, and Absalom goes on for another two years once returning to Jerusalem, not entering into the presence of his father, it doesn't make so much sense if if David has been longing for the return of his son. David has been longing to go out against his son, to lead a campaign against him in battle for what his son has done. So Joab's intended course of action to persuade David to let his son back into the kingdom makes a little more sense. The risks he takes in employing the wise woman from Tekoa become a little more understandable if we realize that David in no way is sympathetic toward his son Absalom. Joab here, he saw the success that Nathan had when Nathan came to the king and told the parable of the man with the lost, the little lamb that was taken from him. And so he's trying to mimic Nathan's success in convicting David of his wrongdoing, what he perceives as wrongdoing toward his son, through the attempt of another parable. And so he tells this woman of Tekoa, whose name is never given, exactly what to do and say. She is to go to the king with all the markers of a woman in mourning. 
And verse 3 says that he told her the precise words that she is to use when she was granted an audience with the king. In verses 4 to 7, the woman tells King David her tale of woe. The first words out of her mouth are, save me, O king. And David asks, what is her trouble? She tells the king that she's a widow with two sons. These two sons quarreled with one another in a field, and one ended up striking the other, and he was killed. And now, she says, the rest of her family has risen up against her and her remaining son, telling her to give up her son so that he can be dealt with according to his crime. If her remaining son, the murderer, is killed, then the only heir will die, and her husband's name will die out. She cannot be, receive the inheritance uh, of her husband. It was to go to their sons. And David is immediately sympathetic to the woman. He tells her in verse 8, Go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And she tells him in verse 9 that she will bear the guilt that her son has incurred. And, tells her, uh, and, and tells, he tells her that he would not allow anyone to say anything or do anything to harm her. She wants more from David. And so in verse 11 she asks that he invoke the name of Yahweh so that her son will not be killed. And David tells her in verse 12, As Yahweh lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And so the woman, by the end of verse 12, has just convinced David to let her hypothetical son, who he believes is real, who according to her story murdered his brother, she's convinced David to let him off the hook. And she believes she has set King David up for what she is about to say next. And that leads us to the second part of the sermon, discerning good and evil. In verse 12, she asks for permission to speak candidly to the king. And then in verse 13, she asks, Why have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. At this point, she believes that David has neatly fallen into the trap that she and Joab have laid for him. That by his own logic... Regarding his son, he's shown himself to be a hypocrite. And perhaps David does feel that way. Perhaps that's the reason that even though he sees through this, he recognizes the hand of Joab in what is going on with this woman. He goes ahead and agrees to allow Absalom to return. So perhaps he does feel a certain degree of conviction. In verse 14, she begins to transition away from her indictment of the king and back to her own made-up situation. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now here it's difficult to say whether she's talking about her son or David's son. Which is probably the point. And in the next few verses, she returns more firmly to the reason she requested an audience with the king. Telling David that she was confident that, she would hear her, that he would hear her request to deliver her at her son from the hand of those who would do them harm. And she finishes her speech in verse 17 saying, And your servant thought, The word of my Lord the king will set me at rest. For my Lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. Yahweh your God be with you. Now the woman of Tekoa doesn't realize it at this point, but she has overplayed her hand. David knows something is up. Ironically, she says as much. He's like the angel of God to discern good and evil. David is pretty sure at this point he sees the hand of Joab in this woman's sob story. And so in verse 18, he says, Do not hide anything from me, I ask you. 
And then he continues in verse 19. Is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? Though she was simply flattering David, as it turns out, he is like an angel of God in discerning good and evil. And she says as much when she answers that, yes, Joab was behind her coming to seek the counsel of the king. In fact, it was he who put all of these words in the mouth of your servant, she tells David in verse 19. Now again, it may be that Joab's motives were pure. That he simply wanted to make sure that the line of succession to the throne was very clear before David died. There's something to be said for that. Even in our own political system where we don't have a king, there are at least pretty clear lines of succession about what will happen if if the president dies in office and who will come in uh, to that position after him or if something happens to the vice president who should take her place. The words, the woman's words back in verse 13 indicate that this when she says that he, that is Joab, planned Absalom's banishment against the people of God. The fact that there is no clear successor to David has left the nation in a precarious situation in Joab's way of thinking. And so he felt, Joab felt the need to take matters into his own hands by manipulating David into allowing Absalom to come back to Jerusalem. Joab did not trust the Lord. And so he did not trust that God had already laid out his plan to David for which of David's sons would be king after him. Perhaps Joab saw himself as some sort of agent of the Lord's providence. The woman says in verse 20, In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. And so it does sound like hubris on Joab's part to think that he was an instrument of change in the Lord's hand. He believed that if he could get David to allow Absalom back into the kingdom, that the rightful heir would be ready to ascend the throne. And that would make Joab a kingmaker, a very important person in the court of the king. That brings us to the third and the final point of the sermon today, the prince returns. The conversation between the woman and David ends, and immediately it seems Joab is standing before the king. Most likely he was waiting in the wings, he was making sure that she played her part just as he had instructed her. And David tells Joab in verse 21, Behold now, I grant this, go, bring back the young man Absalom. And so it seems as if Joab's plan had succeeded. And he is overjoyed. He falls on his face. He blesses the king. He says, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. And he arose and left and went to Geshur to bring Absalom to Jerusalem. But now we hear the rest of the story. Not quite all the rest of the story, but at least the outcome in this uh, this one part of the story. When Joab arrived back in Jerusalem with Absalom, David told Joab in verse 24, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. And we learn later in verse 28, you'll see, Lord willing, next week, that for two full years, Absalom did not come into the presence of his father. So the heir apparent... Joab's crown prince is back, but he isn't being treated that way by his father, the king. And that's because David knows something that apparently neither Joab or Absalom know. God has already chosen one of David's sons to be the next king. Solomon, 
whose name reflected the peace that David experienced between himself and the Lord following the awful incident that culminated in the death of his first son with Bathsheba, Solomon was given the name Jedidiah by God, which you remember means beloved of the Lord. God makes very clear to David that Solomon will be the heir, that he is the crown prince. And so Joab's heir apparent, Absalom, is not the true heir to David's throne. He is not the one through whom God will establish David's throne forever. He is not the one through whom the Lord's Christ would come. In promoting Absalom to take uh, to, to, to King David, in pushing Absalom for his return, Joab was putting himself in opposition to the Lord. It wasn't the first time that he would do this, and certainly not the last. He would again back the wrong son as, as king when in 1 Kings he helped Adonijah set himself up as king. But then David, even in his very old age, moved swiftly to install Solomon as king. And following David's death, Solomon swiftly dispatched both Adonijah and Joab for their treasury. For some reason, perhaps because he saw that Absalom would never have David's favor, Joab abandoned Absalom and would be the one later on by whose hand Absalom would die. This is the way that it is in the history of God's Old Testament people. And throughout history itself, the true heir is fiercely opposed while another is set up as the heir apparent. But just as Joab opposed God by promoting or setting up sons of David other than Solomon to be king, so also many of those in Israel opposed God's true king when he came in the fullness of time. Of course, he, Jesus, is the heir to whom David and Solomon both pointed. He is the reason the throne of David was set up in the first place. He is the son of David and Solomon, and yet he is greater than both of them. And he was hated and despised by many in Israel when he came. The parable of the tenants, which we read in Matthew 21, is a story that Jesus told which illustrates the opposition that he faced. In that parable, the master of a house planted a vineyard. He leased it out to tenants, and when the vines were bearing grapes, they were ready to be harvested. The master sent a series of servants to get the fruit that belonged to him. And these servants were treated horribly. They were humiliated. They were, in some cases, killed. Finally, the master sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the master's son came, the tenants said, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And Jesus used this parable to show how there were some in Israel who opposed him, and so were opposing God, who wanted what rightfully belonged to him. They tried to thwart Jesus at every turn. Eventually, their opposition to him led Jesus to being killed. The irony was that the son of the parable would have shared his inheritance with the tenants if they had simply pledged their loyalty to him. How do I know this? Because Jesus generally, generously shares his inheritance with everyone who believes in him. It appears that Joab, that Joab was, was planning for the next phase, planning for the time when David was dead and what would happen to him. And the best way for him to secure his position, knowing that he couldn't be king, 
was to be the right-hand man to the next king. Joab was seeking his share. He wanted what he thought was rightfully his. And that's how so many of us are. That's how the people of Israel were. The, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they didn't want Jesus to come along because they thought he was going to take away from them. But Jesus gives that which is rightly his to those who put their faith in him. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17 says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we might also be glorified with him. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7 says that in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman and born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might be adopted as sons. And Paul writes, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In God's kingdom, Jesus is preeminent. He is the firstborn of all creation. But He isn't stingy with His adopted brothers and sisters. He is very generous with us, just like His Father Joab and Absalom and later Adonijah, they were all vying for what they were convinced belonged to them. They wanted their part. And they were willing to scheme and cheat and lie to get their piece of the pie. They did receive their just desserts. But it wasn't the kind of dessert they were hoping for. Brothers and sisters, we do not need to connive our way into a seat at the king's table in God's banquet hall. If you believe in Jesus Christ, He has thrown the doors wide open for you. He's welcomed you in. Joab and Absalom and Adonijah, they were fighting for scraps, but everyone who believes in Jesus enjoys God's full feast. Now we will always, as fallen creatures in a fallen world, those who struggle with temptation, we will always face the temptation in this life to set up someone in opposition to God's true king. For some, it might be a politician. Others, a pop star. Some, a theologian. Others, a tech guru. Our tendency is to set up idols, to set them up and to bow down and worship them. When our service to them is greater than our service to Christ, even if they're not idols... But when our service to them becomes greater than our service to Christ, they have become idols for us. Jesus alone commands your full devotion and service. No one else has the right or the prerogative to expect that of you. But Jesus is no harsh taskmaster. He is the heir of all things. He is the one who generously shares what he has with you, his brothers and sisters. And you are his brothers and sisters if you place your faith in Christ Jesus alone. And that is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have welcomed us as heirs, co-heirs with Christ. You have adopted us into your household, but you do not treat us in some sort of second-rate way. 
you welcome us to all of the rights and the privileges as those who are the sons and daughters of God. But we admit that we very frequently forget this. And so we very regularly engage in the hard scrabble life of trying to get all that we can in this life for ourselves. Very frequently, dear Lord, we fall into the trap of the wise words of others, or the seeming wise words of others. We are wooed by what they have to say, and we follow them. Lord, we pray that you would protect us, that you'd give us discernment, that you would indeed help us to be cautious, but also, Lord, to trust to entrust ourselves wholly to you. Lord, we pray that you would provide for us good friends, those who have our best interests in mind, good friends who have wise counsel. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us with wise leaders, with those who are in authority over us, both in the church sphere, but also in the civil sphere that you would give our leaders wisdom and that you would give them the desire to do that which is best for those under their authority. But we pray that you would help us to remember that we are heirs, co-heirs with Christ. And we long for that day, dear Lord, when like the Lord Jesus Christ, we too will be glorified. We long for the day when we will be raised and our bodies will be raised from the grave and our souls will be reunited and we will live for all eternity in bodies that are glorified in the way that Christ's body was glorified after his resurrection. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.